This episode contains references to homophobia and conversion therapy. If you need help with any of the topics raised in this episode, there will be links to resources in the description and in the show notes at notreadypodcast.com. Why do I want to get married? Why do you want to get married, if you do? Why does anyone want to get married? This question has been spinning in my head since before I started this podcast. And over the last few months, I have actually come to a few conclusions. In my interview with Nick and Marilyn from last episode, we got onto the topic of psychological reasons why someone would want to get married and the social conditioning that would lead you to want to make this decision. And we started unpicking a little bit of my own. Tell you what, yeah. it, I, I think it was so my, my parents were together, and then I had a, there was a wedding where I got to be a bridesmaid when I was ten and loved it. And then <laughs> in year nine, we had to plan our weddings for an RE project. Wow, <laughs> that's amazing. That's so odd. What a peculiar yeah. thing to do. I can imagine being in like plan your funeral. I'd I'd, I'd have loved to get that. In we like had to do that too. Did you? Yeah. Oh, oh, we never yeah. got to do good stuff. They just showed us how to use condoms and what and, in uh, RE. <laughs> For those of you who are interested, the wedding that I planned at 14 featured a crimson and gold colour scheme, a Roman Catholic ceremony and a golden hot air balloon heading off into the sunset to finish the day. I made that out of watercolour and the foil from a chocolate bar and suffice to say, it didn't make it into the plans for the real day. Hey, maybe I should dream bigger. Mr. Ahmed's teaching methods aside, shout out Mr. Ahmed, you were the best RE teacher I ever had. I think I know some of the reasons why marriage is important to me. And I know this all sounds very cynical. I'm definitely overcompensating for the fluffy and romantic parts of my personality. But I'm not all fluffy and romantic. I'm also political. And, like Max from last episode, I think that the personal is political. And we haven't really touched on the political yet. Which brings me to today's topic, same-sex marriage. When I started thinking about doing this podcast and investigating marriage, I kept recalling this other podcast that I listened to in my first year of uni. I cannot, for the life of me, now think what it was called. It's actually really bugging me. So if this rings a bell for anyone, please put me out of my misery and let me know. But it explored the topic of the fight for gay marriage and for gay rights in general. And one of the ideas that was raised in one of the episodes was about the backlash to gay marriage from people within the LGBT community. There were two major arguments raised from this group. The first was that gay marriage is an easy political win, less nuanced and less complicated than other issues that the LGBT community face, and that it was therefore a way to get gay and liberal voters on side without tackling the more complex and pressing issues raised by homophobic discrimination. The other objection was about the erosion of queer culture. The idea was that introducing the inflexible ideal of marriage into the LGBT community was the imposition of heteronormative standards on and the suppression of a group that are inherently countercultural in ways other than sexuality. When you introduce a fluid and diverse group to a rigid institution, does that fluidity remain? Or are you introducing a new way to fall short of cultural acceptability? Six years after the legalisation of same-sex marriage in the UK, I want to know if these considerations are still in play for couples discussing tying the knot. In what ways does being in a same-sex relationship inform your decision-making on this issue? I don't know, so I'm going to ask. You're not going to hear much from me this episode. I'm interested in the role that I play in upholding repressive institutions and standards and that's where I'm coming from in this episode and my own journey to marriage. But today we are hearing from three amazing guests about their own experiences and identities and how they've shaped their approaches to marriage. So at risk of sounding like Ira Glass, today I have three acts for you. Three different people, three different stories all talking about what it is like to be an LGBT young person facing this decision of whether to get married or not in the 21st century. I'm Lucy, it is T-minus nine months until I get married, and this is Not Ready. 
yes, it's something I want to do and it's an emotional investment, but it's also very much a statement. Things have changed. A lot of things have changed for the better, but also things need to change a lot more. Standing up in front of friends and family and just being like, look, we're in love and just shove it in their face for an entire day because that's what our wedding is. We're not hiding it today because we don't have to. CV priests have blessed things like buildings, tractors. They can bless pretty much anything they want, but not my relationship. Act one, Jake. Same-sex marriage has been legal in the UK since 2014. 10 years after the repeal of section 28 from the Local Government Act, the clause that prevented anyone involved in education from discussing same-sex couples and families as legitimate, and eight years after the first civil partnership was created in 2005. In that first year, 4,850 couples tied the knot for the first time, and thousands continue to marry each year. Another even more impressive statistic is that even though civil partnerships could only be converted into marriages from the 10th of December 2014, 2,411 couples managed to do this in the three weeks before December 31st. Despite any objections explored in the introduction to this episode, it is clear that marriage is something that is very important to many people in the LGBT community. Married couples are now the fastest growing same-sex family type, accounting for 29.4% of all same-sex families, as compared to only 8.9% in 2015. But despite this being an increasingly popular choice for same-sex couples, the law in the UK hasn't completely caught up. Marriage, legally speaking, has kept some of the trappings of heteronormativity. And the way it uses terminology is just archaic. For example, adultery is grounds for divorce. For married same-sex couples, adultery can be given as a reason for divorce. But adultery is still defined as cheating with someone of the opposite sex. Same-sex cheating, not adultery. You can use it as grounds for divorce, but it would be classed as unreasonable behaviour, along with drunkenness or getting overly obsessed with a hobby, actual legal grounds for divorce. So given these abnormalities in the law, how easy is the decision for same-sex couples to get married? When same-sex marriage was legalised in the UK, Jake was 16. And to be honest, marriage wasn't the most pressing thing on his mind. I had only started to think about whether or not I was gay about a year before. The biggest thing that was buzzing in my head was like, just, oh my God, Tom Daly came out. And that was just, he was just such a big influence for me in that moment. And the legalization of same-sex marriage not to be, I can only imagine it was because I wasn't really, it wasn't really on my radar for a long time before. For people who will have been there at the at the protest, passing the legislation, signing the petitions, it would have been such a huge and monumental success that that, that law coming into play, that first same-sex marriage, would have been such a um, kind of big moment for them. For me, a much bigger issue was telling people that I'm gay and realising it myself. The legalisation of same-sex marriage was something, oh, well, yeah, maybe when I'm older. And it was just such f so much further away in the distance. Jake is a poet. He's the founder of Nottingham Queer Fest and an all-round good egg. He's also... A 22-year-old language student from the Midlands. Um, I am in a three-year relationship, same-sex. Uh, my partner, Ronnie, uh, who actually lives in Paris, so we're long distance most of the time. And there's also quite a big age gap, and he's also, uh, he's not even French, he's Lebanese, so there's all those kind of things coming into play, the the nationality, the distance, the age gap, um, which I think are pretty relevant when we're talking about marriage, so I just thought I'd mention those. He was working in Paris as a Disney prince, no less, when he met Ronnie. I like to tell people that we met under the Eiffel Tower, 
But uh, then when their eyes go all doughy, I start laughing and I'm like, no, we met on Grindr. <laughs> I live just down the road um, and we met a couple of times and we hit it off. He made me laugh. I said I might hang around a little bit longer and it's now been three years. But the only the first, I think, four months of our relationship, we were both living in Paris. I was here at the time on a year abroad. And then about four year, uh, four months in, I started my degree in the UK in Nottingham. So the vast majority of our relationship has been long distance, except for the summers and the holidays when I come back to Paris and stay with him. The whole, all throughout the first four months, we'd said, this is fun, but I'm leaving in September. So this is going to have to be a, a summer, summer fling. And then as it went on, the second month, the third month, the fourth month came around and we were like, oh, this is not just a summer fling. Like, this is not something that we're going to, that we're willing to, to end just because I'm leaving. So we kind of made the, the decision then that we, that we keep it going. We knew it would be tough. It has been very tough. Uh, it's also been wonderful. I think there's some amazing advantages to distance that shouldn't be ignored either. Um, but on the whole, yeah, I mean, it was it was a pretty big leap to make with two with I mean, both of us having only known each other for four months um, to say, OK, now I'm going to move 500 miles away and we're going to actually try and keep this going. I'd love to hear if you've got any favorite stories from your relationship. Oh, that's such a big question to ask on the spot. I met his family last summer. Um, we went on holiday, went for two weeks to Beirut where he grew up. We stayed at his mum's house, the same apartment that he was born and grew up in. And there was this moment we'd just arrived. Uh, she'd welcomed us. We were kind of non-verbally communicating. And I just remember sitting at the table, eating lunch. And he just turned to me and he was like, this is the table I used to do my homework on in high school. And I just felt so connected to him and his family. And and that was just really lovely. That was like a, a standout moment. Not any, not really anything remarkable, just that realization I think was lovely. I guess that there's been so, there's been countless. <laughs> So marriage is something that I, I guess, holding my hands up, I don't spend a lot of my time thinking about. And so it is something which kind of still exists in my mind in the form that it did when I was growing up, which was seeing it in movies, seeing it in TV, reading about it in books, um, and it being this kind of pinnacle of, of, uh, <laughs> of a relationship, really. I haven't really spent a lot of time unpicking that, so I guess my my thoughts on marriage now are pretty unchanged from that. When you get into a relationship, obviously you start to think about it differently because instead of it being you know, standing at the altar with a fa as of yet faceless figure, all of a sudden that figure has a face and you start to think, oh, okay, now I'm slotting a person into that fantasy and is that something that, that I want to do or not? I think I would like to get married. Um, but again, that's said tentatively because it's something for me that if the person I was with strongly didn't, I'd be okay with that. If they strongly did, I would. If they're undecided, I'd probably try and nudge them in that direction. And as that happens in the case of our relationship, it was something funnily enough that we talked about very early on. And it's something that we're just like, that would be a lovely future fantasy but it's kind of like the, t the the route or the timeline between here and there is not linear or even joint. It's like we can look at our immediate future, next couple of months, next couple of years, and then we can look at distant future, marriage, dog, kids, but those things don't line up directly. And I think we're kind of just going along on this path and seeing if one day it will connect to that future path, but it doesn't necessarily have to. The things that I mentioned at the start, the the long distance, the age gap, the different nationalities, these are all super common in queer relationships because uh, if you look at the number of potential partners that we, uh, that we have, that we are exposed to, for a person who exclusively dates people of the opposite sex, they're looking at like 
80% of the population who are potential partners. And if you look at someone who exclusively dates the members of the op- of the same sex, sorry, we're looking at about a quarter of that. So um, it's way more common to find these different things in same-sex couples. So yeah, I think that is something deeply queer in that we don't have necessarily the same um, pace through life as straight couples, particularly if there's something like an age gap involved. Um, and that can just be one factor for why marriage isn't a, the right fit for a particular couple. I think that the timeline that I experienced in my relationship, and by that I mean the timelines that we are both on individually and as a couple, in some ways don't really lean towards marriage as a, as a right fit. I mean, the, the fact that we are at different points in our lives because of the age gap, the fact that I am studying and, and kind of, oh, I'm a student, I'm a 22 year old student, and the fact that he's kind of got a job, he's had long-term relationships, he's even had apartments with other exes. All of that means that we are very different places in our lives, which doesn't mean that those things can't coexist in a, in a couple, but it might mean that for one or both of us, we don't feel ready for marriage at the same time. I think queering the norm is not just about being of the same sex. It's not really just about sexuality or gender. There are other ways in which the norm can be queered. People have kind of pathologized the idea of gay weddings a little bit, and there's the thing of, oh, I'd love my gay friends to get married. Yeah, I mean, I think the way that we see not just gay weddings, but gay couples in pop culture forms such a big part of how we see same-sex couples and all queer people, all marginalized people, I guess. It's an element of almost straight-washing gay couples in film and TV. When you're presenting a same-sex couple in a movie, book, film, whatever, you kind of have to make their queerness the only alien thing about them. You can't really dig into other queer aspects of relationships other than just their sex or their gender, certainly. I think the obsession with a gay wedding is just something that has been fed to us. And maybe we've just seen I mean, I can't, I can't think of any immediate examples, but gay weddings and... Can you think of examples? Gay weddings in TV and film? I've got images in my head of, yeah. like, tropical beaches and beautiful, colourful oh suits and things. It but... is so funny that you said that, because my my vision of my wedding... This is, not, this is not a current thing. This is when I was younger, when I was, like, 12 or... I don't know. My vision of my future wedding was, like, white suit on a beach. That's all I cared about. <laughs> At sunset big like pagola what whatever like that was obviously something that i copied and pasted from a movie probably not even a gay wedding just a wedding in a movie and it was something that was so concrete that i i think i even wrote it down and and, and talked to my mum about it and things like that so not not a lot of people will have actually been to a gay wedding i mean it's only been a couple of years um so their experience of, of gay weddings will have been kind of an image that's been that they've seen and been like oh i would love that um, in terms of my personal, I don't know, like you said, the example of I want my gay friend to get married so I can go to a gay wedding. I, I'm thinking about my personal kind of circles and, and people, who, people who I surround myself with. I don't think anyone would be particularly obsessed over that, over the, over the idea of it being a gay wedding in quotes, like trademark. But at the same time, I'm pretty sure my mum would have an absolute field day planning a wedding. <laughs> Jake's mum is a costume designer by trade. She's also just the sweetest person. She once bought me a hot dog. I think my suit would be sequined whether I like it or not. I don't... <laughs> Falling straight into the stereotype. Yeah, right. absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> not even my style, but my mum wouldn't let it happen without. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then one of the things that um, being in a heterosexual relationship is that you are expected after a few years to 
marry. That's just what you're expected to do. And then probably in a few more years, it'll be kids. So that's like the path that we're expected to follow. Do you feel that you're some pressure has been alleviated from you or do you feel that, that those pressures apply to you in the same way or a different way? So when you look at the gay community, what I see, this is not based on statistics, but you do see a lot of uncoupled, whether that be single or whether that be uh, with someone but not married, people well into their adult life and beyond. Um, and so I wonder whether the fact that it's pretty uncommon to be in a same-sex, monogamous, long-term marriage. Maybe makes it just because it's less commonplace, you feel less pressure to do so. The thing about kids as well is that it's not really a straightforward process. <laughs> it's not so um, casual for, for a gay couple or a same-sex couple to, to have kids, whether it be adoption or, or surrogacy. Um, you're always going to have to embark upon this big process. And so I think it's probably a little bit more slack given to same-sex couples who either choose not to have kids or don't have kids until much later, um, just because everyone's like, well, you know, they haven't had kids yet, but it is a big process and it's very expensive, so I understand. The other thing about that process is that it is very heteronormative, and as is marriage in a lot of ways. Um, so for a lot of same-sex or queer couples they say this is this is great like this is something that we should have access to this but that doesn't mean it's for us that doesn't mean that we are like opposite sex couples in every way just because this one thing suits straight people doesn't mean that it will suit us because whilst we should have access to the same things as them it doesn't necessarily mean that we have to take advantage of that and the same thing with with kids and with and with everything that you would imagine in this kind of fairy tale happily ever after for straight people in one way or another you can kind of say well that's kind of heteronormative i don't really buy into that so marriage seems to come with a, a societal baggage from religion and from sexism and from homophobia that it used to be inherent we watch dramas very recently and you see people getting married and they're like the law of the land in this country is one man and one woman and that's mm -hmm. that's it so marriage is kind of a, a package deal it's not as innocent as just kind of a, a religious or legal union it comes with so much of that stuff that you've just talked about if you imagine this kind of this package deal with lots of different elements i, I don't think straight couples have the choice as to whether or not they take on some of that baggage. I think if you're a straight couple and you're getting married, you're agreeing to the great stuff, the wonderful stuff, but also the stuff that you'd rather not take on. And I wonder whether to a certain extent, same-sex marriages, you can kind of pick and choose a little bit more. I don't think there's an expectation of same-sex marriages being religious although that's starting to change in, in straight marriages as well, whether they be monogamous even. I've certainly seen examples of, of non-monogamous, successful, long-lasting same-sex marriages. And so I think we kind of get a little bit more, <laughs> not, to, not to paint it as like a, a queer privilege, but we kind of get a little bit more of a choose-your-own-adventure deal when it comes to getting married. I think this idea of this heteronormative marriage template being copied and pasted onto queer couples is not so much uh it's not a, maybe not as strict as that idea sounds i think like i said earlier you can queering the norm is more than just sex and gender you can queer the norm in in many different ways queer people take straight culture and adapt it to what suits them um, and i think that can be done with marriage as well It's not like, I mean, you see the, the typical marriage crazy people. Um, first example I'm thinking of is Monica and Friends. I'm not like that in that I would be heartbroken if I never was to get married. But I'm also not indifferent to it. I think it would be a really sweet thing. I think there's something really important to me, not about 
the religious union or the legal union or the rings or the flowers or anything. I think for me, the one thing, the only thing maybe that I would need is just to be able to actually be self-indulgent for once in standing up in front of friends and family and just being like, look, we're in love and just shove it in their face for an entire day. Maybe it's maybe it's a queer thing. Maybe it's because I'm in a same-sex couple that a lot of the time in this public sphere, going out, going to just walking down the street or going to family meals or whatever, we spend a lot of time, I don't want to say concealing, but we certainly spend a lot of time mm, dampening down the way that we present ourselves in public. I think after so many years of just like not holding hands in public or um, one of us like leans in for a kiss on the cheek and the other one is like, hey, look where we are. That kind of thing, that kind of behavior can get really tiresome. And I think standing up for an entire day and being like, we are so fucking in love and you're just gonna just bask in it with us for this whole day. I think that would be really indulgent and really kind of novel and, and something that I would just like to do. The details don't bother me so much. Doesn't have to be in a church, doesn't have to wear suits or anything. I don't care. Just some kind of gathering, some kind of party in which we say, look, we're not hiding it today because we don't have to. If you want to hear more from Jake, he writes the most sublime poetry about queerness and love. He has been published in Impossible Archetype, nominated for Best of the Net 2020, shortlisted for the Show Me Yours prize, and will soon be published in Inklet also. I will link some of his poetry in the description. Please check it out. Act 2. Ibi. There are many places in the world where same-sex marriage is not an option. And, in fact, that's putting it extremely mildly. Homosexuality is illegal in 72 nations worldwide. And it's really important that we don't see this as something that just happens far away from us. I've been saying in this episode that same-sex marriage was legalised in the UK in 2014, but that's not the whole of the UK. Northern Ireland held out a bit longer. Same-sex marriage has actually only been legal in the whole of the UK since January 2020. One person who knows firsthand what it's like to grow up in a country where homosexuality is illegal is my next guest. I'm Ibtisam, but loads of people just call me Ibi. I'm from Bangladesh. I was born and raised there, but I've been living in the UK for 10 years now. I moved to Nottingham in 2010 for my undergraduate degree, and I've been in the UK ever since. It's been really interesting living here because I kind of came to terms with my sexuality only after I've moved. I'm, I'm a cisgender gay man, and it's been an interesting and very humbling experience of self-discovery. Ibby is engaged and he lives with his partner and their cat Miles Murales. Spider-Man fans, you know what I'm talking about. It was nerdy interest that originally brought them together. We actually met on OkCupid. I'd been trying some of the dating apps. The more conventional ones weren't as um, welcoming the kind of immediate hookup culture that apps like Grindr and Tinder offered made some people a bit forward, uh, which really freaked me out. (laughs) Some of it was a bit uncomfortable because they were fetishizing me a fair amount because of the fact that I'm not white. So that was obviously very much a no-go. So I tried out OkCupid, which felt a bit tamer in some ways. And my partner and I connected simply because both of our dating profiles just had a list of all the things we're both really geeky about. So we called her, oh look, I found another geek online, basically. I'd started my PhD um, at that point and he was starting uni in Nottingham as well. And we hit it off really, really quickly. We, We met for two or three dates in like the first week um, and then made it official by the end of the first week. 
and he proposed to me a year and a half after that in at, at the Nottingham Kitty Cafe, which was where we had our first date. So we've been engaged for a few years now as well. We're taking it slow. We're kind of planning to both be financially independent before we actually have a wedding because we know how expensive it can be. Um, and obviously, in, in my case, it also involves bringing my family over from Bangladesh. So it's going to be probably a lot more planning than even the average wedding here. But um, we're, we're okay taking it slow. We don't have any dates in mind. But yeah, we've kind of been happily engaged for a couple of years now. Um, so currently it is illegal to be gay in Bangladesh. I mean, it's it's illegal to be caught in a homosexual act is how the law is framed uh, in, in Bangladesh. Um, so growing up, um, although I, I think it's very much, I had an inkling. Um, I had several inklings. I think when you hit the stage where all of your friends are talking about their crushes and you start realizing that you don't have the same crushes as they do, you have crushes on them. Um, in some ways, it was um, a terrifying experience because of just how uncharted it was. And I didn't really have anyone to speak to. Um, there's no one in my family who is openly gay. I don't even know if anyone is um, is at the moment. I mean, knowing how big families are in South Asia, I'd be surprised if no one else is. But um, I didn't have anyone to speak to at the time. Obviously, none of my friends were out. And I was mostly just in denial about it, I think. Every time I reflect on what it was like growing up, as gay in Bangladesh, it was mostly just extremely severe denial. And I do have to point out that I was very lucky in so many ways. I had a very stable family. We were quite financially well off. I didn't have to worry about grades too much because I was a pretty good student. And that was, you know, that um, academic pressure is a very, very big thing for kids of my generation in particular. So I was one of the luckier ones. I was very stable in, in so many ways in that way. And I, I know several of my friends struggled with other aspects as well, in addition to their sexuality. But at the time when you're a kid, you don't think about your privileges. You just know that suddenly your life is completely in shambles, is how, how I felt about it. And I was constantly just hiding it um, to the point where I think I was denying it to myself as well. Just basically convinced myself that this is just a phase and I'll get over it. I lived in India for a couple of years uh, because I did high school at an uh, international baccalaureate school. We didn't have IB schooling in Bangladesh, so I had to go to another country to do that. And that was a semi-liberating experience because it was an international school and there were a lot of people who came from countries where it was legal to be gay. Uh, but India, like Bangladesh at the time, um, still criminalized homosexuality. So while I was meeting people who were open about their sexuality, I knew that it still wouldn't be safe for me to come out. Um, so when I came to the UK, that was the very first time that I lived in a country where being gay, legally speaking, was fine. So this is really the first place where I was able to kind of breathe and just go, okay, this isn't a phase, this is who I am. And kind of, I feel like the, the kind of conventional journey of denial, terror, and then moving into self-acceptance that you have spread out over a few years kind of got squeezed into one year for me, which was the first year of university, where at the beginning of it, I went from complete, complete, you know, this this can't be happening, um, I can't really be gay, to by the end of the year going, okay, this is who I am, now I need to figure out who it's safe for me to tell. I started with my brother, in fact. I actually told him I was bi, and 
a week after that when I realized that he would be okay either way I actually went no actually no I'm, I'm not I am gay and once I told him I started telling friends in the UK uni friends um, I told my parents but I made sure to tell them in person they came to visit that summer um, um, and they took it really really well they had a brief moment of oh really are you sure I mean and I think both of them had a lot of misconceptions about what it is to be gay, which is totally understandable given kind of the country that they grew up in. It's the same country I was in. And if you're not gay, you, uh, I mean, even if you are gay, you kind of have to discover a lot of these things by yourself there because there isn't a gay culture, there isn't a gay scene as such. And if you're not gay, you're kind of just listening to the stereotypes and listening to the very homophobic stereotypes and just internalizing a lot of that um so i'm really really proud of my parents for actually just being like well okay this is what we know about what it means to be gay and we're pretty sure some of it's wrong so we'll just we'll learn but we'll make mistakes along the way and i like that they're very self aware about that they still make mistakes sometimes, but it's completely from a place of just not knowing better rather than of malice. I always thought about marriage as this kind of really expected thing in South Asian culture. You either get married to someone you love or you get married to someone the family finds for you. It's 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 very unusual to remain unmarried, although it's becoming a lot more common now. As a child, I think I did think about marriage, but as this very kind of clinical social institution, which I had to get involved with, rather than something I actually wanted for myself. For me, when I came out to my parents, after the first, I'd say, year of them kind of adjusting to understanding my sexuality and my identity, a lot of the expectations of straightness were taken off me um, from a family perspective and it helped that I'm a man the social pressure to get married in South Asia that is doubly so for women some men can get away with the bachelor lifestyle and once I'd come out I think my parents had kind of They'd gotten used to the idea of just saying, oh, well, he's not really interested in marriage. He's probably just going to see how it goes. Um, and because that extended family pressure had been taken off me, I therefore never felt the need that I had to get married. I don't think um, I ever went into any of my relationships with marriage as the end goal. Um, but with my partner now, um, I've reached the stage where um, it, it's not something I have to check off as such, but it's something we both want to do. I always liked the idea of bringing my culture into it. Um, South Asian weddings are a very different experience to a British wedding. Um, they're much longer. They, they last five days, uh, which I'm not expecting to happen, but it's it's a very fun cultural experience um down even down to to colors you'd never wear white at a wedding white's a sign of mourning for us you'd wear red and gold um and there'd be um kind of orange flowers everywhere and um the food is something you talk about a lot because you'd want to make sure you have the right biryani cooked at your wedding so it's always those it's those cultural markers for me that really stand out when I start to think about weddings for myself. One of the things for me going into marriage, I am so conscious of the the history of it and the weight of baggage that comes along with it as an institution. In lots of countries around the world, you can't get married if you are gay or in a same-sex relationship. And I wonder for you, coming into a marriage, does it feel like you're kind of sticking two fingers up to that kind of history or is it something that still weighs heavily on you? 
I guess to an extent it is. And I think part of that is just because of my existence as a gay person of color from a Commonwealth country. My very identity and existence is kind of very political. It's illegal to be gay back home. Um, something we haven't, something I haven't actually mentioned yet, but it's also illegal to be gay back home because of colonial history. So the reason it's legal to be gay back home is because of Britain, not because of Bangladesh. Um, so it's it's very weird coming and finding myself in Britain. So I'm consciously aware of that all the time. Anyway, in in my in my own existence. I think post-Brexit as well, the fact that I'm in an interracial relationship, my partner's white, I'm not, is also something that has become much more noticeable, at least in my experience, than it would have before Brexit. Um, and, and there's layer upon layer. Although I'm not a practicing Muslim, I do have a Muslim surname. There's constant Islamophobia in the country, which I am subjected to because I'm racially profiled as a Muslim. So there's so many angles of that where I feel like my daily existence is already quite political that I can't help but think that our marriage is an extension of that. I, I think it's very much a combination of, yes, it's something I want to do and it's an emotional investment. Um, and it's a romantic investment, but it's also very much a statement of um, how things have changed and how a lot of things have changed for the better, but also how things need to change a lot more. I've heard from um, queer activists that marriage is often quite an easy win that once you once you've allowed gay marriage oh it's fine everything's fine um the lgbt people have the same rights as everyone else and um, mm -hmm. there's no more to be done i think the uk is a very very good example of that um and i do want to point out um how useful a pr win it has been for the tories because if you look at the actual voting record um which is very publicly available the largest block of no votes uh, for same-sex marriage was the Conservative Party. So it was really Labour and the Lib Dems that pushed the vote through. It was under David Cameron's government, um, it was under the coalition government, uh, but it wasn't the Tories who voted for it. Quite a few of the current cabinet members actually voted no, including our current Equalities Minister. So we really shouldn't let the Tories off the hook for their rather abysmal LGBTQ plus record, uh, which is ongoing. And I think that's the danger in, in getting complacent with same-sex marriage and access to same-sex marriage. It is vital, but it shouldn't detract from places which um, still need focus. The Tory government incorrectly gets applauded for passing same-sex marriage, and it is that same Tory government that is currently threatening very necessary trans rights and are also really abysmal when it comes to non-binary rights. Not to mention the fact that there's rampant racism in the LGBTQ plus community. There's rampant ableism in the LGBTQ plus community. M marriage hasn't solved any of those problems. And I think that's something that we need to be mindful of is marriage is a stepping stone towards equality. It is not equality in and of itself. And it's vital we remember that. Immigrants getting married don't always have the same rights marriages for disabled couples often result in disability benefits being slashed. Um, that's not equal marriage. <laughs> that's depressive. That often makes people not want to get married where, you know, that might actually be something that they would like to do. So we can't focus on marriage as the final victory because it's not. As a community, we still have a long way to go. We need to keep pushing and um, we need to not get complacent. Marriage is great and marriage, for those of us who want it, is a really important emotional point and also a very important legal point. But it's a good idea to maybe also take some time to think about those who don't have the same levels of access and why they don't and what we can do.
anyone listening in the UK, you know, you can you can always write to your MPs. You can share donation links. You can promote activist groups. You can start lobbying for asylum seekers to get more LGBTQ rights in the UK. It's little, little things like that that can be done. And I think that's something that if, if anyone listening to this feels like they want to do something, it would be steps like that I'd encourage them to take. Ivy and I had a really long and informative discussion and we talked about way too much to include here. So next week I will be releasing a bonus episode where you can listen to a bit more. Links to charities and activist collectives working for LGBT rights in the UK and around the world can be found in the show notes at notreadypodcast.com. Act 3, Louise. So I don't think I've actually mentioned this on the show before, but I'm getting married in a C of E church. This is kind of a twist for me. I was raised Catholic, but for most of my adult life, I've identified somewhere on the atheist agnostic spectrum. My preferred term is heathen. So I never expected to be getting married in a church. And then I met my partner who is Christian and who introduced me to a whole progressive side of Christianity that I hadn't seen before. We actually ended up getting engaged at a Christian arts and activism festival called Greenbelt. So next year when we get married, it will be rather wonderfully my partner's dad, a C of E vicar, who will be conducting the ceremony in a C of E church. Coming from Catholicism, I always assumed the Church of England was a more open form of Christianity, and there are lots of ways in which this is the case. The Church of England have, for example, introduced transgender naming ceremonies to reintroduce trans individuals to the congregation by their new name. They also allow not only women in their priesthood, but members of the LGBT community as well. So, knowing all of this... I was shocked when I learned that same-sex marriage still wasn't allowed in the Church of England, not even on an opt-in basis from priest to priest. If you thought marriage was a tricky institution, you haven't met the church. When I tell people about the kind of rules that the Church of England has, because most of my friends aren't religious, they're kind of like shocked that it's legal even. Louise is the trustee of the charity Student Christian Movement which advocates for social justice in a Christian setting. Wait, there's a tagline. We've just come up with a tagline and I've already forgotten what it is. That's so bad, isn't it? Progressive Christianity. Student-led progressive Christianity. It's an organisation that kind of helps students to explore their faith in a an inclusive way in a very safe space and kind of gives people the chance to maybe ask questions that who won't feel comfortable asking in other places. She's also a green belter. You know how a lot of people say green belt is like coming home. I feel like SEM is kind of like coming home. It's like finding this massive eclectic family where everyone's different, but we all seem to kind of fit in. Yeah. And want the same thing as in a, in a kind of big picture way. I always feel that yeah. a green belt. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. We all kind of have the same sort of goal of pursuing justice creating communities and it's really nice to kind of be within that diversity can i ask you a little bit about growing up in the church being lgbt yeah so this is by no means like a blanket experience and everyone kind of goes through this differently so my family aren't particularly religious but my grandparents used to go to church. So we'd go for like Christmas and Easter and stuff. But I went at one point with my grandma and got invited to the youth group. And this is in kind of like a small villagey church, lots of like, when you think of church, it, that was what it was. It was like lots of old ladies, someone falling asleep at the back, like some 90 year old on the organ. It was exactly that. And it was quite a nice environment to sort of discover my faith in. So I sort of learned more about Christianity and thought, oh, this is something I'd like to get involved in. So that was around 13. And I think I kind of already knew I was queer then. 
at that time it didn't seem to have a conflict in my head but the kind of institution of the church made me feel like oh this is something I should have a problem with in my mind I was like these are things that haven't met yet that's like a tomorrow problem I wanted to meet up with other Christians that were like my age so I had a friend from school who took me to her church which had loads and loads of young people it was amazing to meet so many people and they had so many like activities weekends away they do like trips and stuff and it was awesome but the kind of things they said were so harmful like looking back on it it was a lot worse than I thought it was at the time. We used to watch videos in the youth group of kind of people that were gay and they'd prayed and God had like taken it away from them. People that would kind of work all their life to to be single. They'd accept that they were gay, but they didn't think that God would let them be in a relationship in the sermons and things it would be loads of kind of all these harmful connotations that you hear like comparing same-sex relationships to child abuse so we were very much taught that being lgbt was this terrible thing this like us versus them type thing it was almost like an illness yeah That was tough. I stopped going there. It wasn't good for me. I was really not well as a teenager. It really took an impact on my mental health because of this conflict between this is who I am and I know this is who I am, but the church is kind of telling me I can't be this. I never really, I never came out in that church. That was terrible, it was kind of a write-off. But my home church in the place I kind of grew up, well, sort of grew up um, going to, it got to a point where um, I'd come out to like everyone else in my life. I was around, I think I was 20. So I'd met my girlfriend when I was 16. So we'd been together for like four years. I had such a safe environment of people that did accept me and I'd gone through a lot of work to reconcile who I am with this faith so I kind of finally came out to this church so there were two vicars one of them um didn't look me in the eye ever again like she just would not talk to me and then the other one was very interested in sort of harm mitigation he really didn't want it to appear as if he was okay with this because other people might have a problem with it. So he sat down with me and we kind of had a conversation and he introduced ideas of sort of, you know, if you ever wanted to like change your mind, like I could go through some some like Bible passages with you, like, and I'd kind of, I'd come up to them through a letter. So I'd kind of said, look, here are all my thoughts. I've been with my girlfriend for like three or four years now. I don't feel the need to defend myself anymore, but just kind of out of integrity almost, I want you to know this. But he was very sort of concerned with public image. It was almost like we don't really know how to handle the publicity almost, even though it was a village church. Remember I used to play music um, in the like, music team um, and they'd say stuff like oh well we'll have to check each week with the person leading to make sure that they're okay with you like continuing to to like lead um, continuing to like play music um, I remember I played at Christmas once and someone came up to me and was like oh Louise like you're still here like I was like yes <laughs> can't get rid of me that easily looking back on it and when I kind of tell people what happened it almost takes someone else to tell you that like that wasn't okay like they shouldn't be able to do that to you and I think lots of us kind of assume that the UK is fine now 
it's a third world problem it's an other country's problem yeah it's an other problem but it's it's happening here yeah it sucks (laughs) it's it's really tough but I know that other people have had it worse I've met a guy at church recently who um went through proper well I can't define what's proper conversion therapy and what is it reputable I know yeah accredited um (laughs) conversion therapy he kind of had like holy water thrown on him he had kind of people praying all over him he had like a, a designated program of events to attend and the fact that this is still legal this is allowed it's just it's not okay can i ask you a bit about your girlfriend yeah so we met when we were 16 um at college and I feels like we've been together forever because everyone around us is sort of like oh yeah Lou and Grace they come as a pair and I feel like we kind of grew up together a little bit and we had a lot of formative years together I feel like between the ages of 16 and 20 you really find out who you are and yeah we've been together for six nearly six years um which at 22 feels like forever yeah she's my person on reflection, I'm so glad that I decided that this was okay because I look at other people, especially like in those videos we used to watch at youth group and my life could have taken such a different direction. If I'd have gone, oh no, I'm not allowed to do this. I'll like wait until I find a lovely man who I'm attracted to and then just get rid of the rest of it. Because, so I'm bisexual as well, so I feel like there's there's this option almost like I could have pleased everyone and been quiet about everything um but that's not how it turned out and I'm really glad that that isn't how it turned out and would you guys consider getting married yeah so we're actually engaged we're not planning on getting married in the super near future because it's so expensive fair play to people who don't have religious marriages a lot of people aren't religious but for me it is something religious and it is really important to me to have those aspects in my wedding so it's it really hurts that I can't get married in a CFE church I know I have options there are a few other types of churches that will allow it so I think Methodists are on the cusp of kind of allowing it um the urc church definitely do but it's still like a an opt-in thing so you have to find the churches that will marry you and a lot of them still won't (laughs) and it's difficult because like civil weddings so if you have like a registrar do your wedding it's illegal to have any religious aspect to it at all and for me that it wouldn't be the same without anything religious it would take the heart out of of it for me it's it's really tough it's wider than married I'm quite interested in working within the church the Church of England is and other religious organizations are exempt from certain sections of the Equalities Act so when I've been looking for jobs recently I have come across job postings where they look amazing but you'll kind of read through the job description and they'll say applicants must agree to this statement of faith marriages between one man and one woman and any relationship outside of marriage should be abstinent and other really fundamental beliefs that are really exclusive so they are completely legally allowed to discriminate if you are a priest in a same-sex relationship um you have to get a civil partnership because they will not allow you to carry on like practicing if you marry your same-sex partner which feels completely illegal but it's not i know loads of priests that would more than happily do same-sex weddings even blessed same-sex weddings they're not even allowed to do blessings it's completely against the law CV priests have blessed things like buildings, tractors, 
they can bless pretty much anything they want, but not my relationship. It's, it's, it's really hard to see when like, you see on Songs of Praise, someone blessing a sheep, like, that's great, fair play to the sheep, you go. But it sucks that I can't have that same blessing for my relationship. Do you think that gay marriage is something that we'll see in the near future for the church? 100%. It's on the way. The near future, I'm not entirely sure, because the Church of England likes to do things very slowly. The Church of England has a lot of kind of working groups and different organisations and panels. It often feels like you're reduced to sort of an issue to be worked through. The Church of England has a document called Issues in Human Sexuality, which was a document that they collated in 1991, and it is what they are still using. And I've found a section in this about bisexuality, okay? And again, it is shocking that they can say this. It is clear that bisexual activity must always be wrong, for this reason, if for no other, that it inevitably involves being unfaithful. I just, I, no. (laughs) They don't know what they're talking about. (laughs) They really don't. The middle bit kind of says, if you're attracted to the opposite sex, like, do that and ignore the other parts. If they are capable of heterophile relationships and of satisfaction within them, they should follow the way of holiness in either celibacy, abstinence, or heterosexual marriage. Yeah, appalling. Really appalling. And you're and you're completely right. It's nothing about love, it's nothing about healthy relationships, it's nothing about human fulfillment or spiritual fulfillment. There is no there is no mention of kind of well, there is mention of holiness, but only in that what you're doing is not holy. And I think it takes a lot to kind of impose that on someone. It seems so far removed from like this common goal of love that we have. And I'm, it, I sometimes struggle to see if that even is our common goal, because to be seen as an issue is like, it's kind of dehumanising. I still have all these questions that you have about marriage like are we doing this because other people are am I doing this as sort of like a you wouldn't let me do this before but now I'm allowed (laughs) I feel like I've still not got to the bottom of this there is still so much to to like explore there's so much to think about in terms of what do I want this to be saying to other people it's quite a public statement of this is my relationship this is good I guess that in itself is quite powerful to kind of say I sort of 10 years ago was this tiny closeted teen terrified that like someone might find out someday and then kind of 15 years later hopefully getting married and making like a public affirmation that this is who I am and this is good I feel like that's quite powerful I love that. And I love the simplicity of it. It's just good. It's very Christian. The start of the Bible in Genesis is like, God made the earth and it was good. And you can get so caught up in these issues and these sort of discussions. And obviously there are discussions that need to be had. But sometimes it just needs to be simple. Sometimes we need reminding that we're okay like we're loved and this is good Louise gave me a list of organizations that are working to promote LGBT rights in religious institutions they will be linked you guessed it in the show notes the Church of England is set to release new guidance on human sexuality this November The Not Ready podcast is produced by me, Lucy Hallam, with editorial assistance from Sam Marshall. I used a whole load of Incompetech tracks this episode, so from incompetech.com. 
Sincerely, Sad Trio, Crossing the Divide, Past Sadness, Blippy Trance, Opportunity Walks, Loopster, Windswept, Into Your Arms, Tea Roots, and Beautiful Acoustic Guitar Melody. Any other tracks were found on Epidemic Sound. Links to the music used, sources, and all of the resources I mentioned in this episode, you can find at the show notes at notreadypodcast.com. I want to send the massivest thank you to my guests on this episode, to Jake, to Ibby, to Louise. Thank you so much for sharing your stories with me and giving Not Ready's listeners an insight into your lives. Thank you also to Sophie Mitchell for being my Church of England link and finding Louise for me. If you'd like to get in touch with Not Ready, our email address is, as ever, notreadypodcast at gmail.com. And you can follow us for infrequent updates on Instagram at notreadypodcast. And don't forget the K. If you would like to sponsor this episode and have your brand mentioned in every episode, please get in touch at notreadypodcast at gmail.com. Bonus episode next week. I'll see you then. <laughs>